G'day everyone, welcome back to episode three. My name is Nick Tasky, and today I'm joined by Jake Walkie, a regenerative farmer based in Albury, New South Wales. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be here, Nick. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, there's a bit there's a bit going on, I guess. Uh, my name's Jake Walkie, married. I've got I've got two sons that are five and two. I'm expecting my third child in about two months. Uh, I've always wanted a big family and uh, a little bit daunting for my wife, I guess, when we were dating. But now she's gone through three pregnancies and she's a proven breeder. So very happy with my choice there. Uh, I own a bicycle shop and a cafe in partnership with my parents that I've had since 2011. In 2019, took an interest in organic farming, uh, growing organic veggies in my backyard, trying to address some health issues that I had, which took me down the rabbit hole of sourcing grass-fed beef and other things. And, and I wasn't really satisfied with, I guess, the integrity of the food that I could source uh, locally and easily. So I thought I'll, I'll grow it myself. And my, my family had a 100-acre farm close to town here. So I hit my parents up and I said, can I lease that block of land and move some cows around and chase them with some chickens? And they said, go for it. And I did. Uh, 2000, end of 2020, my wife and I purchased a butchery here in town and renovated and took our protein processing under our own roof because we found it was that was the biggest bottleneck for our farm business was to get meat processed. It was uh, slow and expensive and subpar uh, uh, outsourcing that and now we do that internally and we custom process for 15 local farmers on our farm we do beef pork chicken lamb eggs honey and we breed dogs for the pet market from imported bloodlines very cool that's a pretty diverse uh, operation you got going on there and vertically integrated by the sounds of it a little bit. It's not vertically integrated by choice. Vertical integration sounds like the sexiest thing since sliced bread, but uh, when you're a part of it, it is fragile. It actually, like, I'm not convinced that it makes you uh, more robust. Sure, it takes you out of the whim of you know whims and decision making of others, but it also makes each part of your enterprise wholly reliant on another part of your own enterprise. So an example of that is our our cafe restaurant that uh, trades inside of our bicycle shop, which is a seven day a week uh, breakfast lunch venue, uses all of our protein from the farm. So eggs, bacon, uh, chicken, lamb, honey, all of that comes straight from the farm. And when COVID lockdown started, the abattoir uh, that we use said they didn't want to do any private kills anymore. So my farm revenue stopped because I couldn't process anything. My butchers had no work to do because I couldn't get animals butchered and my cafe had no stock because my butchers couldn't do anything. Mm. So although we were, I guess, 75% of the way to complete vertical, vertical integration, the whole thing stopped. Uh, so it actually adds a layer of complexity and fragility uh, to the business in, in, in a way. So... You know, we, we are trending towards more integration. Uh, as, you know, I'm going to be a little bit of a hypocrite about what I just said. We we are, you know, working towards having our own abattoir in the future, but it it's 
I don't think it's as um, easy and rosy as it looks from the outside. Yeah, no, I can't imagine is. Uh, can you speak on like how many animals you're you're running in your operation? As far as I know, you said you do cattle, uh, pork, you do chickens. Sure. Um, what? Well, firstly, what what did you start off with? Well, the first thing I did when I took over Dad's block was I got twenty uh, heifers, Hereford heifers. Uh, not for breeding, just for fattening. They were, you know, it was a very cheap market back in 2019, yeah. and a heifer wasn't much work worth much more than a steer, and that was a good buy. And then I bought a caravan on Facebook and ripped a bale of straw apart inside of it and tech screwed a dozen milk crates to the wall as nesting boxes and put 40 chooks in it that I flogged out of my dad's little shed that he was growing his own, laying his own eggs in. And so I started moving those 20 heifers around with some polybraid and a portable trough and, and bucketing water and just doing absolutely everything the hardest way possible. And then towing it around with a, a borrowed vehicle. I'd have to go out there and beg my dad to borrow his ute so I could move these chooks around behind the cows. So that's really what we started with, a small beef enterprise. And the idea of that was just to grow beef for myself and my growing family. There was never to sell beef. And the chooks behind that was just to try and be involved in the romantic aspect of mixed enterprise farming that guys like Joel Salatin uh, spruik and, and uh, download onto the hearts of uh, young men like myself. So it was never intended to be a business. It was just about shoring up my family's access to, to good food. But as I got through that, I thought, you know, I'm doing all this work, moving these cows every day, and they look brilliant. The pasture is doing really well. The chickens are laying great eggs. And if, I'm, if I've got all these cows moving every day under the same program, but I can only eat one of them, maybe I could sell one to a family member or a neighbor or a friend. So I absolutely went to town guilt tripping every single person I knew trying to trick them into buying some meat for me. And it just so happened that they were incredible cows and we had a great season and they all finished beautifully. And I had a lot of uh, good grace ahead of me and, and, it, and it helped build a little bit of a reputation that possibly I knew what I was doing and it gave me a leg in to buy my next lot of cattle and and off we went. But yeah, I started with a small herd of cattle and a small uh, flock of chickens. In regards to the numbers that we've got now, uh, at the moment on our farm, we've got across, we've got three lease blocks of 40 hectares each. So we're, we're you know, all up, it's about uh, 300 acres for those working in uh, old-fashioned, archaic, obsolete measurement systems. And I've got about, uh, I don't know, 80 cows that we're breeding, uh, you know, plus all their progeny and bulls and everything on top of that. And I've got about 70 ewes that have just started lambing. This is my first time mucking around with sheep. And I'm incredibly bullish about the future of sheep, the economics and the life cycle is just exceptionally accelerated compared to beef. And it's so exciting being in, involved in something that moves so quick. Mm. Beef is almost like a bit of a, I'm almost looking at it like it's a bit of a gentleman's hobby now because it's so slow compared to yeah, okay. uh, other livestock. Um, at the moment, I've got 3,000 broilers on my farm. So they're meat chickens. Uh, their life cycle's you know, about six to seven weeks. So we, we, we're processing about 250 to to 350 a week. Uh, I've got 80 pigs on the farm. We're, we're on track to do almost 400 pigs in the next 12 months. Got about 30 beehives, 1,200 laying hens that are giving us eggs every day. 
and uh, I think I've touched on everything there. Yeah, cool. So that sounds like a, a fair bit to <clears throat> get your head around to begin with. Well, you don't want to. You don't if you don't have a background in agriculture, like I didn't. Yeah. Uh, you you probably wouldn't want to start there. But in terms of daily chores, managing those animals, you know, like when you when you're starting a new enterprise and building your your infrastructure and building your knowledge base, it's uh, tumultuous and takes a bit of time. But all those enterprises that I just rattled off could easily be looked after in terms of day to day chores in 20 hours a week. Uh, no problems at all. It's, it's, it's actually, you know, when you have a, an issue like the pump breaks or you have a storm and, and fast winds, you know, that's when you need to put in a few extra hours and, and see what you're made of. But in terms of just day to day, rinse and repeat, feed, the, feed these ones, move these ones, that's all quite simple. We spend most of our time sitting behind the wheel, driving to the abattoir, driving to the butchery, driving to the customer's house to drop the meat off. You know, sometimes I feel like we're celebrated couriers. Yeah, right. That's uh, that's pretty funny. So tell me a little bit about the um, the inspiration to begin. I know you mentioned the name Joel Salatin. Was that something you just, you watched like Food Inc or you saw him talk on the Joe Rogan experience or something like that and you were like, hey, I'm, I'm inspired to do this? When my wife was pregnant with our first son, Otto, who's uh, all, almost six, he was born in 2017, I got right into organic gardening. So when you have your first child, like for me, my life sort of changed. I didn't want to be out with mates so much. I wanted to be home with, at home with my wife and my child. And I was trying to find things that I could turn my hand at at home. And I, I live in town, all my farmlands lease, so I don't have a background living on farms. And I didn't have a workshop to go into. I didn't have, you know, a, a paddock to go toil in. So, and I didn't want to sit at home playing Xbox and picking my nose. So I went out the back and started gardening. And I got right into no-till organic gardening. And the place that I got a lot of my information from was YouTube. I spent quite a lot of time following different vloggers on YouTube. And one gentleman was Justin Rhodes, who's got a beautiful... Uh, channel where he 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 um, sh shares media of his family's journey through homesteading and her homeschooling and organic farming. And he had I was watching one of his farming videos with a uh, with a gardener called uh, Paul Gauchi who who does this beautiful type of or um, orchard gardening called Back to Eden uh, farming. And a little thumbnail popped up on the side with the suggested videos list, and the thumbnail said on it. This man buys land for $30 an acre. And I knew it was clickbait. Like you read that and you know it's clickbait. But being the uh, businessman that I am, I couldn't not click on it. Like the, the value proposition was potentially too high. So I clicked on that. And that was, of course, Justin Rhodes doing a, a vlog visiting Joel Salatin from Polyface Farms property in Virginia there in America and you know the $30 an acre was Joel talking about how with $30 worth of infrastructure per acre he can double that land's productivity so essentially he's buying an acre for $30 and I watched that and I hadn't thought at all about uh, growing protein or eggs or anything like that and mm. I was just completely uh, captured by Joel's uh, optimism and romanticism around agriculture and I just did a deep dive and, and very quickly decided that that's something that I wanted to try and be a part of. So, yeah, that's, you know, it's it started with Polyface Farm for me, really. 
Yeah, very cool. He is a, a very inspiring guy and he's like he's a, he's kind of he romanticizes everything and I think uh, I think that's probably a lot of the reason for his success is that he's so inspiring and um so passionate about what he does. He's a cool guy. Have you ever seen him speak in real life or taken any of his courses? Uh, I haven't done any of his formal courses. Uh, I'm not sure what he offers there, but I've met him twice with a couple of Aussie tours that he did and, you know, enjoyed getting to hear him speak one time. The first time I met him, Taranaki Farm farm in uh, Victoria here in Australia, had a, a two-day workshop with him, which I guess is a course. Uh, so I, I went and did that. I don't know, there was... 20 people there that did that course and I just was on cloud nine, just thought it was so much fun. Just wanted, I had a couple, I think right at that stage, I just bought my first flock of 300 hens and I was starting to lay eggs for our cafe. It was maybe early 2020, right at the start of our journey. And then a few months later, he was back in Australia and a local worm farm actually just around the corner from me had him come and, and speak at a summit and I got to meet him there and, um, and, and you know shake his hand again which was a real real blast for me it was like if you're a rock star fan and you get to meet gene simmons you know i just thought how cool is this joel salton's right in my hometown uh had and, and it's part of the allure for me with with mr salton is not just his farming aspect but i love his family values i love his um thoughts on homeschooling i love that he's a faith-based farmer like i i really feel like i connected with him on so many different levels and I think that's why it resonated so strongly for me and, and why I just had to jump in. Yeah, there's a real meaning behind what Salatin does beyond just, you know, making profits or, or, or selling what he does. It's, it's like he's, he's trying to change the world, which I think is very inspiring. Yeah, and I like the fact that he doesn't hide behind his desire for profits. You know, you're not going to change the world going broke. Yeah, that's so, exactly right. um, you know... I, we, we've got five tenants of production on our farm, five pillars of production, and our fifth, and we, and we sort of reference them in sequence. And pillar number five is be profitable. Uh, you know, we want to get paid, we want to have a good life, and and I want to scale my enterprise. I think one of the things that is sort of burgeoning on uh, regenerative agriculture is this, you know, poverty communist mindset that everybody needs to be as micro as they possibly can and sort of be these starving artists because if you don't your heart's in the wrong place and, and your virtue is no good. And I just think it's toxic. Like if, if the, the, the more revenue I can produce, if I can maintain my farm's integrity by proxy, the more people have access to fantastic healing food and the, and the more animals and landscapes that can be liberated. So we've got absolutely no intention of pulling on the handbrake out of virtue. You know, we're the opposite. We want to scale as hard as we can so that we can get animals out of sheds and landscapes restored. Yeah, I like it. Uh, so speak to a little bit because I, I think um, my experience with, with organic farming when I worked in commercial agriculture, I think this is a lot of people's understanding of what organic agriculture is, is they think it's it's taking a, a fellow, you know, a fellow field or, or, you know, taking the crop that you're currently growing and you're, you're starting to apply organic inputs and so instead of putting npk fertilizer you're putting cow manure or you're putting something certified organic on there um instead of spraying with uh any kind of chemical that you can think of whether it be roundups one of the most popular ones or or you know what whatever you can think they the the, the common idea is that you exchange that for uh, a certified organic uh pesticide or herbicide or fungicide or whatever it is 
um, that is not the way that regenerative farming works in my understanding. So could you elaborate a little bit on exactly what style of farming you're using and how it differs from conventional farming? Yeah, sure. Like I, I respond to us as uh, I, I refer to us as organic farmers, but we're not certified organic. I'm not certified anything. Uh, I, I don't care for any bureaucracy to come on to my property and audit me and give me a stamp. It's just not something I'm interested in being involved in. I've been offered plenty of certifications, want to come and get amongst it, and um, I'm not concerned at all. Organic for me is, you know, just the the status quo from 100 years ago. It's it's not using oil uh, as, as a um, cover crop, basically. Yeah. So, you know, and, and like you said, it, for me, it's not swapping out uh, cow manure being spread out on pasture versus super. What I'd like to do is have the cow on pasture spreading manure in terms of something intensive. So, you know, for me, organic farming or regenerative agriculture, like it doesn't have to be a real dog, dogmatic and the industry sort of is in a bit of turmoil. Everyone's in fighting on these Facebook groups. What, what, is, what is your definition of regenerative agriculture? To me, it's real simple. Are you regenerating the commons or are you not? So our common resources are generally referred to as things like uh, water quality and air quality and our, our shared forests and woodlands. But I'd like to push the envelope a little bit further and saying common resources should also be the health of our soil and the fertility of our soil and also the health and wealth of our community. Because if our community isn't healthy and wealthy, we all suffer. If you live in a poor community, it becomes potentially poverty stricken, uh, crime can escalate, uh, relationships and family units deteriorate, uh, you know, your, your personal health. And, and where you're at in your own journey is not what it could be. So I think when we're looking at regenerative agriculture, and when, you know, when I give lectures and talks, I, regenerative agriculture for me is a style of farming that increases the commons being air, water, soil, community, health and wealth uh, without it being at the cost of someone else. So we don't want to have to extract minerals out of a mine in the Congo to put on our soil so that we can have another good year when we could just harness our production models here and move our animals a little bit differently and integrate another species and, and have a different mindset about what a weed potentially is you know we've got weeds on our farm things like stinging nettle and i get I, i'm so upset because with our grazing management we've got rid of them but i know my cows love eating them i'm trying to figure out how i can bring them back into my pasture because it's it my cows like them but we've managed to graze them out of our out of our pasture with our rotational methods. So it's also a little bit about changing your mindset as to what your goals in um, agriculture are. Like we have the odd thistle come up, and is it a problem? Like when we when we put our cattle in their cell for the day, they eat it. So why would I get upset about that thistle existing if it's putting kilograms on my cows? Yeah, that's a that's a very good point you make, and I I think uh, this is something that. Uh, Max Galane and I discussed uh, in the last podcast that I did um, and, and just going back to the difference between regenerative farming and, and conventional farming is I see it as they're, they're, they're two totally different things. So my what I currently do now is health coaching and, and I like to use the analogy of, of building the soil or creating compost. So 
you can put your eggshells and your coffee grounds and your food scraps in a compost bin um, and you can, you know, shut that compost bin or, or bury it in the ground and, and, you know, come back the next day and there's not going to be any compost there. It takes time. Uh, it takes heat. It takes energy. It takes uh, the bacteria and all the, the other things that you add to it uh, to create that compost. And what a lot of people, or, or I think uh, what has maybe an ideology that has spread uh, with organic certification is, uh, you know, you, you can sell your, your food uh, a value-added product, um, a certified organic product uh, without having to actually create the compost. And I mean that literally and figuratively because you can have an organic product that is grown exactly the same as a conventional product but has had uh, organic uh, inputs instead of conventional inputs. And to me, that isn't, you know, you, you may as well just go to Coles or Woolies and, and just buy the veggies from there that haven't been sprayed or whatever it is. It's, to me, there's, there's no real difference. Does that kind of make sense to you what I'm saying? Yeah, well, the integrity has been sucked out of it. Like you could have an organic egg that's been laid by a chicken in a cage because it got fed organic feed. You know, so like, what do you want? Do you want an organic egg from a tortured chicken, or do you want an um, organic egg from a chicken that's being able to express its chickenness? Mm. Uh, so, you know, when I was when I was maybe I'll, I'll quickly tell you about the five pillars of production on our farm, and it might give you a bit of an idea about where we come from. But yeah, we, let's do I it. I call it I call it our flywheel, and obviously, a flywheel is a little mechanical uh, contraption that generates its own. It keeps generating and adding to its own momentum. Uh, so, our first pillar of production and they all get shorter. So I'll talk about the first one for a few minutes, but then they all shrink up. But the first one's animal welfare. For us, when we're making a decision on the farm, uh, you you can't get onto decision matrix number two unless you address number one properly. And animal welfare for us is more than outcome-based metrics. Like the caged egg facilities probably have some of the best outcome-based metrics in the whole egg production industry because it's so highly... um, regulated and quarantined and medicated that if you're looking at outcome-based metrics, maybe it's uh, mortalities per thousand, they probably look the best. But, you know, you you could say um, in, in my facility, there's been um, no bicycle accidents. Um, there's been no theft. There's been no murders. Uh, no one's even said a cruel word to each, each other, and our metrics are fantastic. But you've got all your all your people in solitary confinement, twenty four hours a day. So you know how moral is your system? How ethical is your system? So I don't really buy into that outcome based metrics. I for us, welfare is you need to look at the natural expression of the species in context to its natural environment. So an example of that would be pigs are species that uh, come from Europe and uh, live in forests. So, so a pig is an outside animal. It's an omnivore. It's social. It wallows. It, it, it eats uh, fungus. It roots around in the ground. And, you know, so many of those expressions actually directly feed back into that animal's health. If you don't give an animal, if you don't give the pig the opportunity to stick its snout in the ground, it's, it's going to need an iron injection uh, very early on in its life because it becomes instantly um, anemic and iron deficient. But if you let a pig stick its nose in the ground, you've just mitigated that input. Uh, if your pig has fleas or lice or ticks or is susceptible to sunburn, you could create it a wallow and it could lay down and put it, go to its own homemade beauty salon and put its own full body mud mask on 
and suffocate all those parasites and basically apply sunscreen and protect itself from parasites in the sun. The animals have all the tools to look after themselves, but we've removed them from those environments. So for me, step number one is looking at the context of the animal in context of its environment. Step number two, after animal welfare, we call our environmental backbone. This is really simple. You know, we want to be stewards of our environment. We want to rehabilitate our environment to, to take it back uh, to its natural expression and, and make it more productive and more fertile so we can grow more uh, produce on it. And I don't believe we have to do anything real special to do that. I just believe if we look after step number one, number two will be fine. So an example of that is we're going to take a migratory herbivore uh, like a cow and we're going to move it around the farm really quick so it doesn't sit in the same pasture all the time. And that's looking after the welfare of the animal because you're mimicking its natural expression. And by proxy, your paddocks are going to get longer recovery periods and you're going to grow more grass. So you've looked after the animal uh, and by proxy, the environment's doing really well too. Step number three is we want to create healing food for our community. Uh, we believe food has the power to heal. If, 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 you're, if, you're a, um, if you're training to do a triathlon, you're not going to be drinking copious amounts of alcohol, eating KFC every lunch because you're not going to be able to stick to your training regime. You're going to be eating uh, uh, meat and eating light salads and, and drinking filtered water and making sure you're outside all the time moving. So, you know, humanity knows uh, you are what you eat and what you eat makes you feel better, but we're trying to mask that with protocols and yeah, um, well, pharmaceuticals. Yeah. You know, we're, we're trying We've to band into the same into the same kind of uh, mindset as, as, as farming has, right? Like we're, we're following the same trajectory as, as, as farms had. And it's, it's all connected you know, in that way. We've got vets and doctors, right? They're both doing the same thing. Uh, step number four for us is we want to build community. Uh, we believe that by being transparent and maintaining integrity-based systems on our farm, that if we look after animals in contact to their natural, natural expression, if we steward our environment and create a great product that we're naturally going to build community, we're not homesteaders, we're not isolationists, we want friends, we're social beings, we want a support network, we want a, we want a community and a tribe around us. And number five, like I said earlier, is we want to uh, be profitable and we also want to showcase that for other budding young farmers because it's not easy to uh, start from the get-go with, without inherited land, uh, without equity, without land, uh, livestock, uh, you know, without generational knowledge. And so we've started without a few of those things. We, 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 we did have land, I guess, within the family, but I leased that at market rate for my parents. I purchased my animals. Uh, we, we learned the lessons as we go. So we're quite open and transparent through social media and our farm tours about the economics behind our operation. And if we can uh, inspire anybody by giving them a little bit of a mud map, uh, that's something that means a lot to us. But everything, as I explained, stems back to animal welfare. Mm. Speak a little bit about, because I always find this very interesting, uh, when you say the animals have the tools they need to to keep themselves healthy, like, and you talk about uh, pigs making themselves m like mud baths and and you know uh, cattle moving from pasture to pasture, um, you know, a lot of these farms that do improve pastures uh, will plant fields and fields of of the same variety of grass, or you know, they'll have one variety of grass in one field and a different variety in another. Um, speak a little bit about. 
about what makes regenerative agriculture different in the way that uh, maybe they they feed their cattle? Well, you know, if you're planting out crops for your animals and you're feeding them on, you know, like a monoculture um, loosened to get them fat really quick, it, it's something that might be really nice in the short term. But I, I was speaking to a farmer the other week that just finished lambing and it was such a good season and he grew so much nice grass that a heap of his uh, ewes, his mother sheep, had prolapse. Um, you know, they've, they're, while they're going through lambing with their babies, they've had prolapse and they've had to be put down because of, um, air quotes, animal welfare reasons, they shouldn't have had prolapse in the beginning. Like why were they just fed chocolate bars 16 hours a day? You know, and the answer is economics because it, it made sense for that farmer to, you know, put out that crop and fertilise that crop and, and grow them really fat really quick. But that's just not the natural expression of the animal. And you to, to rely on, uh, I guess, animals... Uh, looking after themselves with the tools that they've been given, you really have to start with the right animal. If, if you're going to start a really tight rotational grazing program and you don't want to be um, drenching and putting all these inputs and uh, uh, labour management into your animals, but you're starting with fine wool merinos, you're going to have your work cut out for you because those animals have had a crutch for the last 50 years and that crutch was called intensive management because they're so highly valuable because of their wool crop every year that farmers would bend over backwards to help them stay alive through a rough season or to help them through a rough lambing, you know, or, or whatever it is. So, you know, on our farm, we don't really have improved pastures. Every now and then we'll sow a multi-species cover crop as a bit of an experiment to see if we can grow more forage to um, feed more animals per hectare. But we, we, we're very uh, conscious and careful that when we do that, you know, we'll, we'll sow anywhere from 12 to 20 different varieties of plants in that one crop to make sure that there's a biodiverse pasture for that animal to graze on. It's not a natural thing for an animal to have a, a, a monoculture uh, diet. So I don't know if that really has answered your, your question, but for me, when you're expanding on animal welfare and you're looking at the context of that animal, you, you one of the very first questions I ask is, is this animal fit for purpose? Because if you're going to take an animal that's not fit for purpose and expect it to look after itself like its brethren in the wild might, you're going to potentially have really bad outcomes. So a really easy example of this is my broiler chickens, my chickens that I raise for meat. They're very different from a hen and they're very different from any wild pheasant you're going to see. They, they can't fly. They can barely perch from hatching to processing at two kilos of weight is under 60 days. So these are birds that are very different from any bird you're going to see in the wild. So if I if I put them on my farm and treat them like I would a pigeon, uh, they're all going to fall over and die and miserably. And I've got a really bad welfare example on my hands. So we have to look at, that's why I say when you look at the animal, you have to look at its natural expression uh, and, and its environment and its capacity and decide how you're going to treat it. So we're currently getting into the lamb business. We've bought some ewes that we're not drenching, uh, we're not giving them any pharmaceutical help and they're on unimproved pastures and at the moment they're as, as fat as you could hope. They're round. It looks like they're almost rolling around in the paddocks instead of walking and that's because of the species that and the genetics that we've accessed. If we were to start a breeding operation with something like a fine wool merino, they would probably currently be struggling in our unimproved pastures because their genetics for the past 50 years have been uh, managed so beautifully well. You, I'm not critiquing necessarily the merino farmers because the 
the ability to grow the quality of pasture year in, year out that they've, that they've done for their lambs, even though I don't like the amount of inputs and everything that they've done, it's extremely complicated. You know, they've done a really a tremendous job, uh, but that just doesn't align with our values on farm. Yeah, and I don't think we're, we're, you know, it's not a criticism of other farmers, like you say. I think it's more a criticism of, you know, the marketing of, of major corporations and, and probably the tricksterism that, that goes into that. Like uh, on, on your point about, uh, you know, uh, animals like pigs, you know, there, there was a marketing campaign uh, that ran for a long time where it was like pork, the other white meat. And I remember my first time seeing uh, – it's, it's very difficult uh, in Queensland. I don't know how it is in New South Wales to actually source organic pork. Uh, you can get free-range pork, but it's very difficult to find organic pork. And I remember the first time seeing it and cooking it, it was, it was still pink at the end. And that really showed me that – well, fir- firstly, I, I'd kind of come to the conclusion myself that uh, – you know, it, it was at the same time as as red meat, you know, was supposedly causing everyone health conditions. And so their way of differentiating pork from red meat was to call pork a white meat. And so you have to feed pork a non-species specific diet to make it white, right? Like how can you produce white meat from pork? It's 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 almost redder than than beef uh when it's when it's finished, right? Of course. Um yep. in insofar as what you're talking about uh with with merino wool, what you're really talking about is sacrificing uh, the durability of the animal for for the wool. Is is that is that really what you're saying? Well, it's a trade-off. You know, when they're mm. when they're breeding merinos over generations, what are they focusing on? They're focusing on aspects like wool quality. So they're measuring the microns of the wool fiber and going. Everyone wants to have the best wool because it fetches the most in the market. Their focus is focusing things on like surface area the more wrinkles you can breed the sheep to have the more surface area each uh, sheep has so the more wool you get off each sheep Uh, you focus on things like fertility because that underpins the profitability of your system so if you could get two lambs instead of one you're twice as good off the things you're not focusing on because you can only do so much there's only so many hours in a day and you've got to select for certain metrics they're not focusing for things like uh, parasites or disease resistance or feed conversion efficiency. And so being somebody who's selling uh, meat and whose private primary, I guess, uh, guiding star is animal welfare, I couldn't give two hoots about micron uh, fiber quality or surface area. I want to have a sheep that I don't need to cut its tail off to make sure it doesn't get eaten alive by maggots. I want a sheep that can eat unimproved grass and get as, as fat as a pig and enjoy its life. I want a sheep that doesn't need help lambing. And I want a sheep that's not just going to get wormy and need pharmaceutical inputs just because it um, brushed its nose on the ground. So, you know, they've been, it's just a, it's just a change of priorities. It's, you know, we've gone, the, the beef industry has gone through a few different things, but, you know, something that's happened over the years is that we keep selecting for larger and larger weaning weights because you get paid on your weaning weights really, if you're selling your animals at that time. And if you focus on having the largest weaner calf, by proxy, you're going to pick the largest birth weight calf. And a a consequence of that is you've got mama cows that are going to be pushing out bigger calves than maybe what they ought. Um, So like, why should a Mm. farmer have to pull a calf out of a cow? You know, like a, a, a mother animal should be able to push out a baby animal. That's just a primary function of breeding. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so obviously, there's always going to be extenuating circumstances and um, isolated incidences. But um, you know, I hunt a little bit, and I've never once seen the skeleton of a deer with a with a foal stuck halfway out of it with them both dead. And I'm sure that's happened somewhere. Someone's going to get on Yahoo and, and you know find that isolated incident. But uh, by and large, that's not a thing. I've spoken to farmers who uh, in the past bred Hereford cattle, and they've had years, they've had complete breeding cycles where their pull rate was 40%. <laughs> You know, folks, that's not a natural thing. That's it. That's human induced. Uh, so these farmers were very clever, and, and they and they figured that out, and they and they fixed it within one or two generations. But the reality is, is they got there because they were selecting for metrics that you know that suited the the business financial projections and didn't prioritize the animals' welfare. Yeah, interesting. And and for me, that really spreads into you know. People people get very concerned. Um, I know when I when I cook a piece of pork now, um, it's like, well, make sure you you know whoever you're cooking the pork for, make sure you cook it until it's fully cooked. And and people have this idea that, and and it's spread from the same thing. It's like if the pork isn't white, then it's it's unhealthy, and you're going to get sick if if you eat it because you need to cook pork fully. And and you know maybe you need to cook pork a little bit more than than you need to cook beef, but. Why, why do you need to cook pork fully? Because there is a reason yeah. why people think that. It, what other it, meat do you need to cook fully? Oh, it's it's probably chicken, right? Chicken, yeah. yeah and the yeah. reason you have to cook, the reason that we have this perception that both of those animals need to be cooked fully through is because they live in filthy environments, in mm-hmm. indoor mm-hmm. sheds, laying around in their own feces all day. Yeah. You know, full of parasites and worms because they're in inherently unhealthy, unnatural conditions. Uh, so, you know, pork has probably been the biggest eye-opener for me in agriculture for all the same reasons that you've just mentioned. You know, our, our pork scotch on the shelf is is as red, if not redder, than our beef scotch, just like you articulated. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a fattier animal and the flavor is incredible. The first time I, I raised two pigs on the farm in one of our front paddocks just for my wife and I. So when I got married, my wife's a tremendous cook. And I thought, you know, we're going to have kids. We're going to do all this stuff. I've got to stop being such a useless bum. And I've got to figure out how to cook a little bit so I can look after my wife, you know, for those first uh, few beautiful months when she's got the baby and I can I can be, you know, macho man going around the house cooking stuff and fixing stuff. And I thought I'm just going to pick a handful of meals and I'm going to perfect them and I'm going to be like alpha dad. And one of the meals that I thought I'd do a really good job of perfecting was pork belly. So I got on YouTube and I, I was watching Jamie Oliver and Gordon Ramsay and, you know, all these funny chefs. And I was buying pork belly from the supermarket. And every Thursday night, I'd come home and I'd cook a pork belly. And, you know, the, the response from my wife and uh, myself was always the same. The meals kept tasting better and better, but we kept feeling like dirt afterwards. And we'd wake mm. up feeling boggy and slow and lethargic, indigestion issues, um, you know, issues defecating. And just not a great system. And so we stopped eating pork. Mm-hmm. And then I started growing my own pigs. And just as a, you know, you've got the land and you're out there feeding the cows anyway, you may as well throw a bucket of food over the fence for the pigs. And the first time we processed our first two pigs and ate them at home, uh, tasted great, no indigestion, no bowel movement issues, didn't feel bogged down, woke up feeling fantastic, like we'd had a nice porterhouse the night before, and off we went. And that was a massive eye-opener for me because, you know, like like you probably say, and I know Dr. Max Golhane and I have spoken about this, 
you know, it's not just you are what you eat, but you are what you eat eats. Mm. So, and that's why we talk about pillar number three being creating healing foods. We believe that there's a difference between eating pork from a, um, a, an animal that not only lives in a shed, laying around on concrete flooring, not seeing any fresh air, sunshine or dirt, uh, but an animal that's been specifically bred for that. You contrast that to an animal that lives outside and, and can handle that and thrive in that environment, eating a, eating a varied diet, having sunshine, having soil, having uh, fresh air. It, they're very different proteins to, to put into your body. So I've, I've got one lady in town, just to, just to finish off my pork rant, there's one lady in town. She's a beautiful lady. She's about 96. And I supplied her beef about uh, probably two years ago. She's uh, my accountant's mother. And... Uh, just a little cut because she lives alone, you know, quite, quite an elderly lady. So she doesn't have a huge um, appetite. So I gave her a little few little cuts of pork and I went back a couple of weeks later to give her some eggs and see how she was going. I like checking in on her. She's a beautiful woman. And she said, that pork you gave me was sensational. I haven't eaten pork for 30 or 40 years, but that's, that's as good as I've ever had. And I said, oh, yeah. And she made this comment that her father, so you could imagine if he was, if he was, he would have been, um, born in let's say 1900 or something mm. his comments at home was he wouldn't you can't trust pork unless it's got an inch of fat on it <laughs> that was that that was a truism in their mm. home unless it's got an inch of fat it must have been a sick diseased malnourished dirty hog that you wouldn't want a, a, a thing to do with and now when my pigs get delivered to us from the abattoir because they've got more than an eight mil fat cap they've got a cross next to the delivery slip saying these pigs are no good you know the industrial pigs have seven or eight millimeters of fat and ours have more like 11 or 12 we like it with a little bit of extra cover on it because that's where all the flavor is and when you fry your pork chop on the on the on your cast iron grill then you can you can pour the excess fat into your drippings jar on the yeah bench yeah, yeah. And, i got the same you, thing and you've got your butter for ne next morning's bacon uh so yeah i don't know that that that's been a, the, the the other white meat uh slogan which was there to to sort of band-aid up the fact that pigs can't exercise anymore and they're eating basically vegetarian diets instead of their natural omnivorous diets you know it, it, it's a great example of what the industry is capable of mm, yeah it's I, I could listen to you talk on that all day. And I, I remember specifically watching, I think I first heard Joel Salatin on, on Joe Rogan's podcast. And then that kind of led me to watch the documentary Food Inc. And I remember seeing him talk on that documentary about how his farm had been shut down or the, the FDA um, in America had, is it the FDA or the, the, the USDA, whichever one it was. Um, I think he calls them the US DAR. Um, US DAR. Yeah, yeah. They uh they had attempted to shut down his his chicken operation because he was killing chickens outside, um and they said you know we're killing or or when you look at these these factory farmed animals they're killing them in a in a sanitized environment where you're using stainless steel and everyone's wearing full body suits and face masks and gloves and so he was like okay you know I I will uh, I'll fold so long as you test uh, my chickens against the chickens that are coming out of these out of these factories and so what he inevitably found or what they found in the end was the chickens that they were producing from these factory farms were something like two million six hundred thousand parts per million e. coli per gram uh and in the in the chickens that he was killing outdoors that was something like six thousand and it's like just a complete 
different animal, a night and day difference. And it's undeniable the difference when when you've got figures like that. You know, you, you're having a chicken that's eating its species-specific diet versus one that's probably never walked more than a meter in its life. It's lived on top of other chickens. Uh, it's probably lived in squalor and been diseased its entire life. And people are wondering, you know, why these animals are – well, people aren't even aware that these animals are sick. They're, they're saying, look how great it is. It's so cheap. Yeah, absolutely. We've we've got a an industry that has been designed to be – or a society that's been designed to be um, liability-obsessed. So, you know, the, the metric isn't let's create the most healthy chicken or let's create the most ethical chicken or let's create the most environmentally friendly chicken. It's let's, let's create the chicken that's least likely to make somebody sick immediately. You know, so they'd rather, they, they, they'd rather um, poison us slowly. And they wouldn't admit to this. And I'm not even saying this in a sinister way. They don't mm. even understand this. They'd rather give us subhazard food that poisons us slowly and, and mitigate the liability than potentially giving con- us contaminated food that could harm us in the short term. And the, and the unfortunate reality is, is that because we're raised in that environment, they're probably right. Like our mm, immune yeah, yeah. systems probably suck. So we, we become predisposed to needing that, that supply system. You know, when I'm at the farm, uh, at the butchery doing a bit of work and um, like I've, eat, I've eaten beef raw, I'll look at that and I'll go, what does that taste like? I'll just grab a slice of liver off the side of the table. Yeah, like, that oh, table's had pork over it. It's had chicken over it. You know, we've, we, 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 we've done all these different things throughout the day and it's probably sat out of there in the air for six hours and I'll grab a little bit and mung on it. And I've never once uh, been sick from any of that, uh, you know, so, but I, I really believe that it, it's all about pasteurizing the food, uh, make, making sure it's safe in the short term. No one wants to deal with a case where they've poisoned someone to go home, and I don't either. Uh, but there's no foresight really, really about all the other impacts. So at the moment, our chicken enterprise, I've got to get to the farm at 11 p.m., uh, load the chickens into crates, leave the farm at midnight, drive four hours down to Melbourne, to get to the abattoir before 5 a.m. and unload the birds. And then one of the boys, whoever does that trip, myself or one of the boys, we have a 60-minute power nap. We get our empty chicken boxes back, put them in the ute and drive home. We get home about, you know, 10, 11 in the morning. And we could easily process them at home in an airborne shed, something similar to what Joel Salatin has, but just, you know, complete nugget. Like, it'll just never happen. They've got a small state exemption that lets them get around that, but it's just mm. a complete nothing burger here in Australia. And but I, I do have a little setup like that at home where I process my own family's chickens. Like we probably eat 200 chooks a year. So three times a year we'll get in there and we'll a few friends and I will sit there and we'll, we'll just with a little um, cheap plucker and scolder, we'll process 40 chicks, take three fellas two hours, and none of us have ever been sick. That's very cool. I mean, no that, no yeah, one's yeah. ever been hurt by it. Uh, I don't, I, the, the chickens are definitely better off. Yeah, not having to go through that freight trauma. Um, so, and and the birds weren't soaked in a um, you know in a chlorine bath or anything like that. So, you know, I, I my, my my whole answer for that would be something very libertarian. Just um, you know, as long as it was informed consent, why can't adults get along? Like I, I just just as a hypothetical workaround for the scenario, like let's say Jake wanted to do it on his farm and he wasn't abiding by regulations. 
why couldn't a customer come to the farm and literally inspect us doing it and sign a waiver going, I release liability because I'm, I'm satisfied. Yeah. You know, you know, there's so many things where we're, we're letting people have gender reassignment surgery as minors and, and taking hormone blockers. And, and, you know, we've just got all this crazy stuff happening all around the world, but you can't decide to buy a chook off a guy who's processing it in his backyard under your own inspection. You've got to, You've got to um, appreciate some and, and trust some nameless, faceless bureaucrat yeah. over yonder to do it for you. It's uh, it's I in, in my opinion, and and I know there's there's different points of view on this as well. I I think the you know on everything you're talking about, but I think uh, I think the state of our of the health of our farming and our animals is catching up to to the state of our own health in in more than one way, and I, I think. Um, you know, one, one of the results of that is our passiveness or our, our, uh, total lack of care about, uh, things like these, in my opinion, atrocities going on and, and, you know, all of these, um, political things that are happening that are just, you know, utterly ridiculous and no one seems to care. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, everyone just wants to stay in their own lane, uh, not make any waves, uh, uh, live and let live, uh, leave me alone. But the, the reality is, is that didn't, that isn't working so well. No. You know, and it, it, every, every time we get told we can't do something and we go, well, it's just one little thing. We're not going to worry about that because we've still got all these other freedoms. You know, the line yeah. just gets drawn a little bit closer too. Yep. And, and, and the I, lack I'm of not, quality that we see in our food is, 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 in my opinion, very obviously spreading to a lack of vitality and a lack of a lack of care, a, a total, a, almost a total apathy in ourselves. You know, absolutely. It's it's easy to walk into a supermarket sometimes and see people. You know, they're they're almost like just entirely dull, almost like the lights aren't even on. And it's like, how can that not happen when you you would you would see this uh, firsthand as well? It's like, you know, you what you're eating isn't isn't living it hasn't lived and and now it's spread over to you mm. and it's it's funny what a short period of time it can take uh from you know converting back to to eating living vital food um and you know like i've said before and i'll, I'll probably hear this a million times on this podcast or worry about it a million times but um you know there's the energy that you get in your food from a from an energetic living animal um carries over into you and in, into your own um you know, your own vitality, your own uh, mental and emotional state, your own life force. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, quality feeds into quality and and it, it does matter. But unfortunately, that's not the status quo out there. So we've just got to do the best we can with the with the lanes that we've got. So in, interesting, you, you sort of made the comment uh, before about uh, people in the supermarket, you made some comment that they were, you know, lifeless or, or, or on, on autopilot or something like that. My eldest son, Otto, who's uh, almost six, is an, is an incredibly bright, um, energetic, athletic young man and asks 101 questions. And I remember sitting in the back of my dad's car when I was about the same age, asking him questions. And I remember a specific instant and he sort of flipped his lid and he said, stop asking me so many questions. You know, you're getting on my nerves and you keep asking the same question over and over. And I've told you a hundred times. And I remember just sitting there seething, just like, just like oozing contempt for the way he just spoke to me, thinking to myself, 
I'll never speak to my children like that. Uh, <laughs> and and I'd be lying if I uh, if I said I haven't fallen short in that regards. Because as a child, you don't realize, you know, the the, the you know dad was um, overworked and underappreciated and, and malnourished and burdened by bills. And 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 you know, a child who just asked the same question. 14, I kept asking if I remember it, I must have been six years old. I remember it like night and day. Dad, could a police officer get you in trouble for this? Could a complete <laughs> police officer? But, you know, now when my son asks me things, you don't always have the questions. And it's a really good um, a thought exercise to actually chase those answers as far as you can. But a thought experiment that I've been working on with my son, and this will probably mortify 99% of polite society. I out want there, to hear it even more now. Is I'm like, son, some people out there. Most people out there are NPCs. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard the meme, but he goes, what's an NPC? And I'm like, well, an, an NPC is a non-player character. When you're, when you're playing a computer game, and we, we have um, on my phone, he's, played, he's watched me play a few games. We do a few little things. You know how daddy walks around and he's that guy? Yeah. And you know how all those other people are on the screens, but they're not really people. They're just a computer <laughs> game. I said, yeah. I said, well, that's how some people just go through life. They're not really in control. They're not um, exploring on their own um, intuition. They're not mm. taking responsibility for their actions. They're just existing. It doesn't mean we're better than them. Uh, to the to the flip side, the way I describe it to my son, it's actually the opposite. It, it doesn't mean that we're better than them. It means if you're around somebody who's in that mindset, you know, you've got a bit of a responsibility. There's a little bit of a duty of care to um, steward that person and, and, and be polite and help and not take advantage of that person. And it's been actually a really interesting thing watching Otto grab that uh, potentially dangerous lead, I would say, because he, he, he's really grabbed to it. And every now and then he goes, Dad, are they NPCs? And like, firstly, I'm like, shh, stop. <laughs> Stop talking so loudly. Like you, you can't scream that out the other side. But he, he, he's starting to get, you know, because some people are just in different lanes in life and some of us are struggling and going through the mm -hmm. motion because, like I said, we're malnourished and our light environment sucks and we're stressed and we're going through a divorce and our kids are in trouble at school and the dentist wants to replace my four-year-old's teeth already and all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and some other people, uh, like uh, how, how I would hope that I'm behaving in my life, want to have a little bit, um, more autonomy and, and responsibility and um, direction in life. And, you know, that's, that's something I, I think it's a, it's a worthwhile thought experiment. And, and if your children can wrap their head around that in a way that's not um, jealous or proud, but take that in a way that's, I guess, like humble and empowering, I think that could be a really uh, powerful thing. Mm -hmm. I, I do, I do appreciate that analogy. I, I think, uh, I, I think it's almost spot on the money. Um, and I like the way you finished it off. You know, it's, it's not, a, you know, it, it's, we're kind of like trying to get people to, to see like, you know, it, it could be so much better. Right. And again, Max Belhane and I talked about this last week. It's, it's like, uh, people aren't aware of how much better things could be and how much, uh, how much healthier they could be, how much more energetic they could feel. Um, if they were participating a little bit more. Tell well, me the baseline. The baseline for health is really low. Yeah. So when they eat something and they feel like dirt, they don't actually realize that they feel like dirt because that's their baseline. And that's what everyone feels like. That's right. So I think uh, I spoke to the boys on the Meat Mafia podcast this morning and I, I told them that somebody needs to become like the poo guy. It's probably not me. It could be you, Nick. You could become the poo guy. <laughs> What's the poo guy? 
So imagine, like as a farmer, your head's in the looking at the ground all the time. When I was a young man, my dad would always hit me in the back of the head and go, stand up straight, stop staring at your feet, put your shoulders back. And Because I was walking around like I was a bit of a um, morbid uh, unit. And now I walk around with my head down because I'm looking at my pasture quality, I'm looking at my ground cover, I'm looking at my soil health, and I'm looking at the state of my animal's uh, manure on mm. the ground because you can tell about an animal's gut health it's, it's diet, if it's getting enough protein, if it's getting enough fiber, um, if it's getting too much of some of those things by looking at the state of its manure, the shape of it, the size of it, the regularity of it. And we can do that with ourselves. Yeah, I, yeah. I see, I, was... a Chinese, I see a Chinese medicine doctor uh, on occasion. She's helped me a lot with some of my allergies. And the first thing, she, every um, web consult we do, first thing she, she says is, tell me about your bowel movements. I... Uh... I'm, I'm going to send this over to you. I send it, I, I use it with all my clients. I have uh, an illustrated picture of what your stool should look like. And then it has- Because people bes- don't know. People don't know. And then beside that, it has, you know, a picture of what it eats like or what it looks like when you eat, uh, you know, too much fat or too much carbohydrate or when you have yep. too many dehydrated or highly processed foods. And you start to learn to be able to interpret your own stool. I'm going to send it over 100%. to you because I think you'll like it. it that's, but it's, uh, well, that's a brilliant thing. And I'll share it on social media if I'm yeah. allowed to because I think, well, I think this is worth doing because if you can share that and you can get it in the news feed of an NPC, every time they're sitting on the toilet having diarrhea after picking out at KFC, it's going to come in the back of their heads. <laughs> diarrhea is not normal. Like, dude, like I came from that. That was my yeah. past. I, I, I had sloppy bowel movements for 15 years because I didn't realize it sounds stupid in hindsight, but you've got to take off, you know, your hat of pride. No one ever told me. Mm. No one ever said your poo's not meant to be like that. And I didn't, and it didn't hurt me. Like I didn't have sore, a sore stomach or anything. I just would drink heaps of iced coffee out of a plastic bottle at the supermarket and I'd eat heaps of fast food and I had sloppy poos all the time. And then when I started being educated and going, well, it needs, it should be regular. It should be formed, yada, yada, yada. And now I've got a really good baseline. Like I know if I drink too much alcohol, like I can smell that the next day. I know what it does to my body. Right. So, and I just think that that's a really powerful thing. No one probably wants to talk about it. There's a word for that. It's AGB, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, I reckon I reckon you could light them on fire. Yeah, yeah. I it's amazing to me how much uh, kickback you get from people who who actually won't look at their own stool as well. It's like, how? Why would I look at that? That's disgusting. And it's like, well, that's come out of you. It's it's what you've eaten, and it's 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 really shocking. I, I think. And and to to your point there, um, it shouldn't actually stink. Uh, you know, that it's, it's probably not going to smell pleasant, but it shouldn't be so atrocious that you'd be embarrassed if someone else smelt it. Absolutely. Well, you know, poo on the farm doesn't stink. You've got animals yeah. eating their appropriate diets and it only stinks if there's a unnatural buildup and, you know, the animals haven't moved. Then you start to – and one, one of the rules on our farm is your nose knows. Mm. If something stinks and it's becoming sour and bitter in the air, it means you've got an – anaerobic decomposition so something's rotting and we want things on the farm to have an um, aerobic decomposition we want it to compost and s- smell sweet so your nose knows and it's the same thing on the pasture as in our bathrooms yeah that's exactly right I, I, i've heard some interesting stuff on the olfactory nerve which is which is the nerve that goes from you know it's one of the cranial nerves it's your nose straight to your brain and the olfactory nerve is so important because it gives you an, an an instant ability to know whether what you're about to consume or the environment that you're in is healthy or not. 
Um, and it's, you know, you've, you've got the ability to smell something before you put it in your mouth. So if mm-hmm. it smells inedible, you probably shouldn't be putting it uh, in your mouth. And, and, and how are we meant to rely on our senses of taste, sight, smell and hearing when we're constantly being fed uh, loud yeah. music, deodorant, sweetened and salted foods, um, you know, like uh, uh, people's faces covered in makeup, like our, our whole uh, our whole veil that we're meant to observe things through has been skewed. So it's a real process. You know, we're not perfect in our house. By any means, it's a, it's about making baby steps, and, and yeah. every time you can tuck another thing under your cap, you know this is, you know where we're at in our journey. And I do my farm tours and, and sort of talk about it. People say, oh, "Where do I start?" I'm like, "Well, don't look at what we're doing because we're doing all this all these different things. Just start with um, one thing. Maybe it's cutting sugar out of your diet. Maybe that's mm. the very first thing you need to do. It's going to be really hard for two months, but after two months, it's going to become a reflex. It's going to become part of your nature. And then you can do the next thing, which is uh, filtering your water or watching your sunrise or, you know, uh, cutting carbs out or whatever it is, just one step at a time. Mm. It's, it's, it's interesting that you comment on the senses as well, because I've, I've made this point before and I, I think, uh, you know, if I share it with you, you might agree with it, but our senses are so clogged up, right? And and you're you're by the sounds of it a fairly intuitive guy, so um, you, you're trusting your gut in a lot of things, so to speak, uh, and you're using your other senses as well. But when our senses, when our when our sense of smell is clogged up by artificial fragrances or by you know deodorants, and our, our taste is where we're eating hyper palatable food, so we become desensitized to that. Um, our hearing is affected because we're we're constantly blasting. Uh, music in our ears or, or listening to like hyper palatable sounds um all of these hyper palatable things so to speak super saturated affect our when when our system's overloaded we we lose touch with our intuition and then so we stop having the ability to be able to uh to feel what's right or wrong because we lose our intuition 100 percent. this basically feeds back to dopamine addiction doesn't it mm. You know, like we're we're getting dopamine addicted, and we're feeding it through every sense we can: touch, sight, smell, taste, and hearing. Uh, and you know, that's another fantastic r- rabbit hole for people to go down to to start to dopamine fast. And like everyone's felt their phone vibrate in their pocket when it's on the bench in front of them, because uh, they're because you know they they want to be receiving a text message, but they didn't. Uh, you know, so they've, they've felt their phone going. In, and you know, these are all. It, it, it's it's not about uh, uh, right or wrong or anything like that. It, it's about trying to strip back the senses and, you know, are we in our current state fit for purpose? Just like I'm looking at different breeds of animals in the paddock, are they fit for purpose? You know, we, 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 we do have the tools to taste or smell or see if something's good or dangerous for us, but probably not if we're addicted to all of these uh, environmental inputs like we've just uh, rattled off. So yeah, it's, it's it's just about a bit of a process and being aware of it's the first step. Mm, we're on the same path. Talk to me a little bit. We're we're changing topics again, but that's okay. Uh, hopefully, this will be just as interesting. Talk to me a little bit about how you build uh, healthy soils and how maybe your practices differentiate from from conventional practices. <laughs> well, you know, step number one for us is you need animals. There's this agenda in the media at the moment, uh, demonizing animals uh, and, and making out that they're bad for the environment, specifically the cow. You know, we're all, everyone's talking about the cow farts and the methane and the carbon. 
and, and, and all this sort of nonsense. You know, if you're an environmentalist, you should be able to step back and look at the, the grand picture of things and understand very quickly that, you know, animals are the environment. How can they be bad for the environment when they are in the environment? What's bad for the environment is factory farms and animals, uh, animal, the, the human animals shortcutting those natural systems for the sake of efficiencies or, you know, centralization or profit or whatever it might be. Uh, so step number one for building healthy soils for us is by having animals on the farm, but not only having animals, by having lots of animals. So we, we love the fact that we can graze a paddock with cattle and get the cows to eat all the varieties of grasses that they want and put down all their cow manure. And then we can have the sheep come through and they'll select different varieties of grasses and uh, put down different manure. And then we can have the chickens come through and eat different things again and put down chicken manure. And that animal's just getting stacked like lays in a cake. That that paddock is just mm. being um, laid and laid and laid with fertility. And the reality is in our context is most of those animals don't actually take resources from the next they're actually uh hand in hand uh, building fertility increasing resources as the farm matures something else apart from stacking animals on the farm is jealously maintaining a ground cover so we never want to graze our pastures all the way down to the ground and then you've just got bare soil uh, we we want to make sure that when we're grazing a plant that we're leaving enough of that plant behind that it covers the soil because, you know, there's a perm permaculture saying that Mother Nature's modest and she wants to cover herself. She's mm -hmm. not a, you know, promiscuous woman that wants to show all of her skin. She's a modest lady. And if you bear Mother Nature off, you're going to have broadleaf weeds come in, uh, fast-growing weeds that will, uh, you know, cover her soil for her. Now, those weeds in and of themselves aren't bad things. They're just plants in nature performing a role. The reason farmers don't like them is if it becomes a monoculture on your farm and your animals get a gut full of them, it's, you know, they're, they're nitrogen heavy and your animals will get bloat and get sick. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a little bit in your diet's fine. The, the, the cows do quite well on them and actually look for them, in my experience. Uh, something else we do is we, we don't till. We don't throw plows in the ground and disturb the soil. We don't want to break it up. We, you know, we want to uh, incorporate nutrients from the top down, not plant them uh, straight inside. So I guess they're the main things. Have animals, don't till it and maintain the ground cover are probably three really good cornerstone um, chores on the farm to, to grow fertility. Mm. One, one of the things that uh, <clears throat> kind of I, I really took away from my stand in farming was how much water we had to, to apply to the land. And uh, cane's obviously a, a, a crop that requires a lot of water. Um, but when, when you're plowing or when you're tilling soil a lot, you're, you're losing uh, a, a lot of water um, and so it, it's it's probably not just the, the loss of water from opening up the dirt as it is the the dirt's inability to hold water and the reason for that being that it's bare dirt right so I'm, I'm probably going to butcher this this figure or this statistic but um, I believe a, a healthy soil is supposed to be somewhere around six percent humus um, and you you might have an idea or a better idea than me um, as to whether that's wrong or right but the, the water holding capacity of humus is far higher than what it is of normal soil. And so what we're seeing in conventional agriculture with application of huge amounts of water, you know, megalitres upon megalitres of water is uh, a, a real, you know, they're, they're, they're losing water to the environment because the, the, the soil doesn't have that innate holding capacity because it's, got, it's, it's, it's literally bare dirt. It's almost like sand. 
Yeah, sure. Like car- carbon, I can't remember the statistic, just like uh, uh, you couldn't. But every percent of carbon you add to your soil uh, per hectare is hundreds and hundreds of thousands of litres of water of uh, retention capacity that that soil has. And every time you till your soil uh, or expose it through overgrazing or burning or whatever it might be, a lot of your carbon's leaching into the atmosphere and you're losing your soil holding capacity, uh, your water holding capacity in your soil. Um, and that's, you know, you can see this night and day on our farm, e- even in just small water cycles. If you walk out of my farm tomorrow morning, uh, and this, this is essentially true year round, maybe bar a small stint in the hottest part of summer, but you can walk around the farm early in the morning and there's dew, uh, you know, water sitting on all the leaves of all the grasses all over the paddock. But when you come to one of our dirt roads that the car drives around, it immediately next to this plant, bone dry. You could get down on your hands and knees and blow it and dust it blow away. Mm. So on one hand, your boots are getting soaked through and uh, wet and boggy and 10 millimetres to the side, it's bone dry and there's no water there. And it just shows you the power of um, that living leaf on top of the ground. And what's underpinning that is is is, is uh, soil quality and water carbon. And, you know, I, I'm not against throwing a little bit of water around. I've got, a, I've got one big pond on our farm that we've never thrown a pipe into to pump water out of. And I'm looking at it going, geez, there's a lot of water sitting there. And every time it overflows, it floods my shed. And... It, it, it that water if we irrigated that on our um, covered pastures would actually be getting involved in the water cycle because that water would be um, consumed by the plants in the soil and then released back into it would either go down into the water table or be released back into the environment through precipitation and it would rain on the next guy's farm and get on with it but you know having those bare open crops that just get you know um, millions of liters dumped on them all the time. Like it, it, it's a, it's a big um, environmental expense. Mm. So t- talk about, because I'm always fascinated by this and, and probably more fascinated by the fact that many people I've, I've talked to don't seem to be able to get their head around the idea that you don't have or, or, or regenerative or, or organic uh, beef or, or, or animal farmers don't have to drench their animals. How do you get, how do you get around it? Well, I've, I've never drenched an animal in, um, you know, since 2019 when we started farming. And there's basically two, well, there's, there's three ways that we get around it. The first way is quick rotations. So we don't leave animals in paddocks very long. They're in there for a day uh, for, for cattle and, and, you know, other big, big animals. They're in there for one day grazing that pasture, knocking it down, and then we move them away. And the reason that move is important is while they're in that paddock, they're defecating and putting their manure down. And the parasite eggs that are coming out of their intestinal tract through their manure, uh, when they hit the ground, they'll start hatching. Parasites will start moving around on the plants. And then when they're coming back, the cows are coming back to next to where they pooed three or four days later to grab another bite to eat. They'll be ingesting more parasites. Their parasite load increases. And it starts to become detrimental to that, to that animal. So like all animals, including humans, have a parasite load or like a bacterial load or whatever it is. It's just whether you can handle it or not. It's whether it's um, a, a healthy load or not. Uh, so it's it's moving them. The second part is a recovery period. Like if you graze them in one paddock for one day and then move them away, 
that's fine. But if you bring them back 10 days later, those parasites are still there. That time needs a bit of a recovery period to get over that. So it's grazing management. The second thing is keeping them out of water. We fence off all riparian areas on the farm because if you let your sheep walk into a pond and have a little drink and then they're all going to stand there peeing and pooing at the same time because this is what they're going to do. And then when they come back for tomorrow's drinks, all their brothers and sisters have all peed and pooed in the same pond and they're going to be mm. drinking back in those same eggs and parasites that they've excreted the day before. So it's pasture management, it's water management. The third thing is, are the animals fit for purpose? You can move your animals really quick and give them clean pasture, but if you've got that fine wool merino that for 50 years no one's ever thought about is a parasite resistant and they're being drenched every six months, so they've had a they've had a hundred back to back drenches mm. over the last fifty years. You're going to have an animal that can't handle um, an, even a small natural load to what the species uh, would have been, you know, evolved or designed to handle. So it's it's about also having an animal that's fit for purpose. So fit for purpose animal, pasture management, water management, and you know, drench isn't an issue. So we we've had zero issues with cattle because they're such a big anti fragile. Uh, animal with so much vigor and capacity with sheep we've had uh, a bit more of uh, a couple extra challenges in the sense that 99 percent of the time the animals are fine but there's the odd animal that just can't seem to hack it and mm -hmm. we don't want to even though we are dogmatic that we don't want to drench on our farm because we don't want you know when when you drench an animal that manures on the ground the dung beetles don't need it sits there forever it oxidizes all those all those nutrients tied up in that manure oxidize and vaporize into the atmosphere so we are quite dogmatic we don't want to use drenches on our farm but we're also dogmatic that we don't want that animal to be suffer and be emaciated by the uh, intestinal worms or whatever it might be so we just send that animal as soon as it looks like it's slipping straight off to the abattoir um process it turn it into mince and sausages and you know we know that we've selected the better animals that are left behind in our breeding program as a result yeah very cool so i how do you go about selecting varieties and i i know you run uh i can't remember the name of it but a, a variety of, of cattle from south africa um how, talk a little bit about how you how you specifically selected them and, and what you selected for yeah, I, well, Dr. Max actually went to a farmer's market up north and, and spoke to a, a Bryant Usher of East, Eastwell Farms up there about his cattle. And uh, he called me and said, Jake, I found the apocalyptic cow because Max and I had had conversations that what cow would uh, fare the best if an apocalypse happened and there was no drenches, there was no vaccines, there was no farmers to pull calves, in, you know, when they're calving in winter and all these sort of, uh, you know, inputs these animals get. No one to manage feed, yada, yada, yada. What animal would do best? And I'm like, well, it ain't the animals that I'm looking at. Yeah. Uh, and I couldn't really come up with much. And he met uh, the farmer up there who said, these are cows. They're the post-apocalyptic cow. And Max thought, great. So he called me and said, I found it. I Googled it, found a breeder and bought my first bull the very next day. And Bomvu, the Red Nguni, threw him in the paddock and all of his calves are about four or five months old now. They're running around the paddock, cracking little calves. And they're just an animal that's been, you know, bred in South Africa uh, by, you know, white men, Westerners, very recently and before that they were stewarded by natives uh, with no inputs available to them. So they've just been bred in very specific environments under very sort of, I guess, uh, complementary 
goals to what my goals are on the farm. And so, you know, that animal is just as, as vigorous and as robust as you might hope. Now, what's the trade-off? They're small, like they're quite small animals. They, they might be anywhere from 30 to 50% smaller than a British cow, like a shorthorn or an Angus. Uh, that actually suits me fine. I really like the idea of having more small animals uh, than, than fewer big animals for a range of reasons. Uh, maybe their uh, meat uh, marbling might not quite be where people, if people are going out to a fancy restaurant ordering, you know, 12 plus Wagyu out of a feedlot in Japan, the Nguni steak next to it might not look like quite what they like, but I, I can't wait to do some nutritional paneling on our Nguni because I've got this hunch that it's going to uh, stack up next to something maybe like a wild harvest deer. I, th- I think yeah, that the okay. genetics and the environment, I think it's actually going to punch really high because it, it, it hasn't been bred towards intramuscular fat. Intramuscular fat, although it's delicious and looks superb, for me it's really a sign of, um, you know, uh, pre-diabetic mobility. mobility. Yeah. Like if, 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 if you looked at that in a human, you'd be like, dude, you've got issues. Like yep. you um, so I just look at that in our cows and I go, I, I don't know if that's the best thing of what we should be aiming for. Uh, sheep was a bit harder because, as I said earlier, you know, sheep, sheep, you know, Australia and New Zealand's economies were built on the back of sheep and, and they've been, uh, you know, so, um, I don't know what the, I don't know what the right word is, jealously, uh, jealously guarded, not in a bad way, but they've been so highly coveted for so long because they're such brilliant animals that in the things we've selected for, we just don't have animals that are really robust in that way. So I, I was actually seriously looking at going right out into um, towards central Australia, some of these big ranches that have tens of thousands of sheep that they only see once a year and buying those animals because they're just not getting all this hand-holding. And then I found a local farmer that's got a composite of shedding sheep called Catalyst and it's got a few different breeds in it like Dorper and uh, Damara and, and Aussie White and all these different things. And I've been so impressed with them since I've had them on the farm these last few months. I've got them trained behind hot wire. They're eating a bit of ratty feed that grew over summer and, and, they're, and they're as fat as can be and they've just started lambing and no issues there. But it's a bit of a process to find these animals. If anyone's listening and wants to get into animals, don't go on Gumtree and buy projects. You know, everyone goes and, and buys some animals off some backyarder because it's easy and accessible and cheap. If you want to, if you want to maintain healthy farming uh, systems on your property without relying on pharmaceuticals. You can't be taking on sick project animals. You need to start from a position of health. Uh, so, uh, you know, you can message me and I'll, I can give you some referred producers around the place that I, I, I could direct you to, but you really want to start with quality animals. Yeah, very cool. As, as far as, just do it. you know, milk sounds like probably the only thing you don't produce for yourself. Is that is that on the money? Well, I buy dairy cows. I, I buy what the industry calls choppers. So when a, when a jersey, uh, let's say, like a, 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 you know, one of those smaller frame tan colored milking cows, which make that nice fattier milk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when, when one of them's getting culled from the dairy, there's two dairies that I work with locally. They'll send me a list of all their cull animals. Most of them cull twice a year. And they're culling for a range of reasons. They're, they're getting rid of animals because of things like a foot abscess, uh, cancer, recurring mastitis, or maybe just simply because the cow didn't get pregnant, which means it's not going to have a gestation, which means it won't have a lactation. And they're the ones that I buy. So I'm buying animals that have a little bit of a fertility handicap. 
and I join them with my Nguni bulls on my farm and I get all my first crosses, my Nguni jersey. I've got about 40 of them on the property at the moment and I'll have, a, I'll have another 40 at the end of the year come through or more than that, probably have another 60 come through. Um, every now and then one of them will catch my eye and be extra friendly and she'll stand there while I milk her. So we do get we do get a, a house cow sometimes and we can drink that milk at home. Interestingly, Nick, I've been lactose intolerant since since I learned that it was a thing. Like I said earlier, I thought uh, when I used to work in the bike shop, I, we'd send the boys down to the corner shop to buy us a bottle of Hungry Squirties, you know, the Hungry Thirsty milk yeah, drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all called it Hungry Squirties because it gave <laughs> us diarrhea and we thought that was funny. We didn't think there was anything wrong with that. Uh, and then I realized that I had a bit of a lactose intolerance. And even if I just had, you know, half a cup of X milk out of the fridge without it being full of, um, you know, caffeine or whatever it is, that it would still have that same effect of me. Uh, when I, I started drinking unpasteurized milk from a grass-fed cow out of the paddock, zero issues, mm. which I just think is such a curious thing. Because when we're talking about liability-centric uh, production systems, dairy is a huge one, right? You can't yeah. drink our milk unless we heat it to whatever it is, 62 degrees and, and make it safe. That stuff won't kill you, won't give you a bacterial infection that'll kill you. You just can't digest it anymore because the yeah. lactobacteria has been nuked to hell. When you drink um, homemade raw milk, all of a sudden everyone can digest it. It tastes delicious and it feels great. But, um, you know, there's, there's always this long, there's always this, I guess, looming concern that maybe there's some sort of, uh, you know, bacteria in it. But if we went back to like when I hand milk a cow, we're talking about, about the senses again. I can feel her teats. You know, cows are all milked in our system by machines. When I'm milking one, I can feel it. And if they're warm, I can feel a, a bacterial infection coming. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. But when I'm milking her, I can, I can see if it's lumpy. And then I'm smelling it, and I can smell if it's sour, if it's mm. go, if it's off for some reason. I can see the condition of the cow. There's a lot of senses there to interpret the health of the milk. Mm. And beyond that, if you want to talk about some sort of uh, fail-safe in the system, you can just buy these little, you know, two-dollar petri dishes and and squirt a a, a, a little um, squirt of milk from each udder into each quarter of the petri dish. And if it goes blue, it's safe. And if it goes red, it's not. Like we've got mm. the back, you know, these systems that outlawed raw milk 30 years ago, having kept up with modern science. Like we've got the systems where we could um, at scale be uh, protecting ourselves. But anyway, we don't do milk commercially to answer your question. This this was a topic that I was hoping we'd come back to because I love the topic of raw milk uh, and I'm an advocate for it. <clears throat> um, it's it's. I, I think I remember seeing in the same uh, documentary, Food Inc., with Joel Salatin, um, a farmer talking about having uh, the, the Federal Drug Administration rock up to his shop or to um, his farm or whatever it was. And, and, you know, they basically treated him like he was a drug dealer when he was selling uh, raw milk. And uh, I, I remember when I, when I first discovered raw milk as a dairy here uh, in Queensland. It's actually not far from Brisbane. I think it's in Gympie called uh, Cleopatra. And uh, and they they sell what is what they advertise as bath milk, but it's 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 raw milk that you can actually drink, and and so that's how they they can sell it. Hopefully, I'm not getting anyone in trouble. But well, you, I remember yeah, you, going, might, you might you might not want to dox them. You might want to blur yeah, that yeah. out because in in Victoria down here, they've actually made bath milk illegal too, <laughs> as a because yeah. they're aware of the the loophole. Yeah, 
Well, you know, I, I remember going and, and specifically sourcing this milk because uh, as as a kid, I, I loved milk and our family, you know, I'm, I'm one of five and we would we would buy like, I don't know, 10 bottles, of, 10 three litre bottles of milk a week and, and you know, we drink milk with every meal. But, um, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't great quality milk and it, it didn't affect me in so much as um, I would get, you know, uh, runny stools from it or, or diarrhea or lactose intolerance, but it... It just, you know, it would it would make my mouth itchy, and it, it would like uh, it would give me symptoms like a, a runny nose and things like that. And so, um, I remember specifically sourcing this milk and, and going to this shop that had it, and uh, it was like a like an organic grocery store or something. And I bought this bottle of milk, and then they had a cafe there as well. And I don't know what sort of trees they were selling, but. I think I bought this piece of cake and then I sat down and opened this milk in the cafe and drank it and, and ate this cake. And, you know, the people who worked there were kind of looking at me like I was a, you know, a wild man or a zoo animal or something like that. But it's, it's, you can't, I mean, I, I can't say that you can't get sick from drinking it um, because that's, that's not entirely true. But uh, if you source high quality raw milk from a Jersey cow that you know has been, uh, looked after well, then it's very unlikely that you'll get sick from it. The, the the raw milk story is such a rabbit hole, and I can't remember the name of the book, but I read this brilliant book about it talking about uh, how it initially became dangerous, but essentially inner cities in the USA uh, used to have pasture in them. You know, we're, we're ter- talking back turn of the century uh, mm. because they didn't have um, sophisticated refrigeration supply chains or freight networks, so they'd keep cows cows close to the city people grazing grass milking them and then the land became valuable they chopped it up developed it and that was at the time where prohibition ended and they started making alcohol again and having all these spent grains yeah, so I, I know where you're going this, yeah let's put the cows in the sheds uh, let's take them off pasture let's take them off soil let's take them out of sunshine fresh air feed them the spent grains milk that cow and deliver it to people and at that time in culture, it was really trendy to not wet nurse your child, to not uh, breastfeed your child. It was trendy to feed them uh, third-party milks. And so they had all this anemic, uh, lifeless, grain-fed, um, you know, and from sick animals, this feed coming into the babies, making the babies sick, killing babies, when really, you know, mum should have been the filtration system for that baby. Mum should have got a little bit sick instead of baby dying if natural mm. principles were followed. And, and it just became inherently unhealthy. And you also think about how they used to handle milk. They used to take it in a glass jar, put it at your doorstep in the sunshine, and you'd go and grab it three hours later, whatever it might be. Yeah. And for the most part, that was fine. That shows you how anti-fragile and robust milk actually is. Like no one could even – most people, if they left milk on the bench now for 30 minutes, they'd tip it down the drain because they'd think there's something wrong with it. Same as eating a little a pork that's a little bit pink or, or, or a raw piece of liver or whatever it might be. So we've lost our food intelligence – because we've, we've never been surrounded by it and we, we haven't been coached, but also the systems have sort of failed us in that regard. So there's the, the, the legislation around the pasteurization of milk is antiquated. It's surrounded by old practices, old dogma, old technology, um, but, you know, nothing's ever going to happen around that. So everyone just needs to, interestingly, in my state, I live in New South Wales, goat milk is, raw goat milk is legal. Oh, yeah, so okay. If, you can just go to the local health store and buy yourself a liter of goat milk and get on with it. I, you know, the the funny thing is, I suppose you you're almost lucky in a way because I, I think uh, goat milk and sheep milk for people who are lactose intolerant those those milks are almost closer to to human milk and so they're supposed to be slightly more tolerable. Do you drink it? 
uh, a little bit. We uh, when we don't have a house cow, I get a type of milk from a local uh, store called Owl Cow. Oh yeah, uh, and it, and it's from a single Jersey herd, and it's not pasteurized. There's a new uh, there's a new process to I don't know air quotes make it healthy, and it's called cold pressing. Yeah, I've so seen they it. they under cold they they pressurize it under a cold environment, which doesn't pasteurize it, but it does something to it. And that's delicious, and that actually sits with me really well. Uh, mm. Doesn't disagree with me at all. So we we drink that at home. A little bit of goat's milk. Uh, I breed dogs. I breed um, standard schnauzers for the pet market. And we, whenever we've got a lactating bitch, we give her essentially uh, raw goat's milk ad lib as much as she wants because the 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 bacteria and the life in it is exceptional, and it really helps them out with their uh, calcium requirements while they're lactating. Yeah, very cool. So I guess one of my final questions for you would be on on the health of of your kids, you know, they've they've probably been almost raised on on very high quality food, uh regeneratively raised food um and I, I suppose they probably chase dad around the farm a little bit as well. How do you or what sort of difference do you see uh perhaps between your kids and and other kids who aren't quite as lucky? Well, look, my, my boys are brutes and and they're vigorous boys full of vitality. And I think the lion's share of that stems from my wife, who's a very, um, you know, organized, strict, uh, diligent woman. She's a bit over seven months pregnant at the moment and she's getting up 4.30 in the morning, three days a week to go to a gym session before she goes yeah, wow. to work in our, in our commercial kitchen at the restaurant. Uh, and she's always at home pickling and preserving and, and getting the boys to get outside and exercise. So I think I think a lot of that comes from that. But, you know, we also, like our boys have never had sugar at home. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say they've never had, there's a fine line with all of this and a lot of nuance is required because we. If the first thing everyone says is, oh, if you don't give your kids sugar, first chance they get, they're going to pig out on it and they're going to be predisposed to that. It's like that doesn't mean our kids never had anything sweet. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, there's things called um, honey or hmm. uh, maple syrup. You know, there's still yeah. sweet things out there. Um, so, you know, our, our boys have a tremendous amount of high-quality protein from the farm. That's the bulk of our diet. And they get a lot of this sweet stuff as well. And my eldest son, Otto, is an absolute brute. He, he's a big boy. He's, he's, he's very muscular and athletic. You know, when I wrestle with him, feeling his core strength, and, and contending with his athleticism, like really, it is something quite to behold. Mm. My younger son Theodore is—he's got a different stature, and he's just a different boy, and he's not quite. He's actually now that he's uh, two and a half, he's starting to fill out, and you can see it through. But very rarely sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't—we don't have uh, tantrums and and wobbling moods. You know, you see the kids at the supermarket that throw themselves on the ground and scream and got snot down their chin. You know, that's not a reality for us. Uh, we, you know, we, we, we're, we're probably blessed and fortunate in um, too many ways to count. And I, and I think uh, many of that reality for us comes from, I guess, social environments for the children as, as well as their uh, inputs. You know, we're more than the food we eat. And, yeah. and, and we're very fortunate to have a very involved um, extended family that, you know, loves our kids just like we do. So... You know, but I, I, there's there's a lot of children that unfortunately um, fall clean within those NPC guidelines that we uh, spoke about earlier, and I just feel sorry for the kids. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's just 
when my wife goes to the gym, uh, one of the sessions she does every week, she takes our boys with her and they sit in the playground and they, and they play in the playground at the gym. And there's other kids there that are three years old sitting down for the full hour staring at a screen with headphones mm. on. You've got a three-year-old child who two, two metres to the right of them, there's half a dozen kids running amok up and down the play set and, and, and screaming and carrying on. But their parent has decided that the right thing to um, contain them and to reduce their liability for the mm. next hour is to put headphones on their head and a screen in front of their face and, and rob them of the ability to socialise. So it's just... Mm. There's a lot of sad stuff out there happening with the way we're, we're raising our kids. Mm. It's, like it's interesting said. that you comment on the the core strength of your kids. And I made a post about this recently on Instagram. And, you know, it's 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 something that I learned um, in my own studies and something that I see carry across to, to people in real life, you know, um, I do less of it now, but um, but I, I, I PT as well. Um, and I've worked with people with back pain and that sort of thing. And, and one of the things that, uh, is very common in people with back pain is the inability to turn on uh, their transverse abdominus or the, the deep intrinsic uh, abdominal muscles, including the pelvic floor. And, you know, people will talk about what the reason for this is for, you know, months or until the cows come home. You know, it's, it's, an, it's an endless topic. Um, and, you know, your, your mums are going to get that when, you know, the, the core muscles are going to shut off when they have, um, have kids or whether, whether they have a C-section or something like that. But, you know, one of the reasons why these muscles also shut off is because when the abdominal organs become inflamed due to food intolerance or due to low quality food and all these sorts of things, it causes uh, inflammation, which is heat and expansion, right? Which pushes out against the abdominal muscles, which prevent us from being able to naturally draw that in when we pick something heavy up off the ground. So what should happen is the umbilicus should draw towards the spinal cord and the, the whole core should narrow. <laughs> And so mm -hmm. what you see in people who are eating low-quality diets is that uh, the umbilicus doesn't draw in. And so when the natural, uh, the natural process of, of, of tightening the transverse abdominus should happen when you pick up something heavy, it doesn't happen. And so they injure their back and they blame it on the lifting technique, but it's really the food. And so to me, that's really interesting that you comment on the strength of your kid's uh, abdominal strength or their core strength because I think that's probably got a direct carryover. Yeah, well, they you know they eat a lot of protein, and <laughs> when yeah, yeah. I wrestle with them, there's there's no shortage of their ability to um, turn on their core strength. You know, something something else that I think we could say is directly related to the um, core strength of my children is is having a present father at home. Mm. The, the, the the most exercise my boys get every day fits in a pretty neat one hour window, and it's when I get home from work and I hop on the carpet and belt the crap out of them. You know, like. <laughs> We wrestle and I go hard on them and, and I'm laying on my back and they're, they're balancing on my feet in the air and I drop them and turn them upside down and tickle them and, and chase them like a tiger. And we, uh, it, it's a real workout. Like I get up and then I come and give my wife a kiss and, and, and I'm like, oh, I'm flogged. You know, that yeah. killed me. It's, it's a really intensive thing. And, you know, and, and that comes as a, that's, um, how can I phrase this? This is, a, a natural system like when we're talking about welfare on the farm mimicking the natural expressions of animals if you want to have high welfare for your children and and natural the um, natural expression of what a child should experience that's a the ideal is a is a family with two parents mm, yeah and so my, my I, I believe that my parent my children's physical health <laughs> is a direct result 
of a two parent household. Like that, we, we my wife my wife worries about the input, and I worry about the output. You know, we, yeah, yeah. The, the children reap the reward from that. I, I think you're spot on the money, and I, I think we could go down, you know, another rabbit hole in, you know, in in diversity in all things. You know, um, kids who who are from single parent households have a lack of diversity, um, and you know, they're they're probably more so likely to get. Um, you know, more feminine input. And then so, you know, you're seeing this lack of diversity in in agriculture, you know, monocropping or, or, you know, having only one variety of animal on your farm, um, spreading to lack of diversity in the household, spreading to lack of diversity in opinion. You know, if you disagree with my opinion, then um, if, I, if my opinion is on the wrong side of, of what's politically correct, then you know, you, I get cancelled and, and then we see this lack of diversity. We're seeing, you know, I, I guess you could argue more diversity in, in gender, but, uh, the, you know, there's, there's, uh, it's, it's, it's a strange state of affairs. And I think it's all, it's all got to do with our health. Yeah. It's, it, it's a big, it's a big web of interconnection and, you know, every specialist, every expert out there thinks that their field is where it starts. You know, like the, 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 mm-hmm. the social scientists will think it starts with the relationships at home. The nutritionists will think it's all about inputs. Jack Cruz thinks it's all about sunshine. Mm-hmm. You know, like every, every specialist comes back to their own um, speciality, um, which I think is really confronting for people when they're wanting to make changes at home. So, like, the, the, the best way, I said this earlier, and I, I don't mean to become a preacher, but I'm really passionate about people making changes. Mm-hmm. The, the, the first thing that you feel really convicted to change just in your life, in your lifestyle, and your environment, just change that. Don't worry about everyone else. If, if it's, cut, mm. it's cutting sugar out of your diet, if it's, if it's getting up and watching the sunrise, um, if it's forgiving someone and giving them a cuddle, like whatever it is, whatever you're most convicted about and makes sense, do that, nail it, let it become a habit, and then the next thing will fall in place. You've got to tackle that and you know improve your situation. I'll uh, I'll share something with you that's that's probably a little bit woo woo, but I think you might appreciate this. So I love woo woo. Um, woo woo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I've you know Jalal Khan, yeah? yeah. Yeah. So him and I have talked about this, and and this is coming to hang my... out with me. He's coming down to the farm next weekend. Oh yeah, very out. cool. Um, so. This, this isn't my original thought, so I, I won't claim it, but, you know, um, he, he introduced me to Jack Cruz and, you know, Cruz's thing is, is definitely light. Um, to me, it, you know, if, if, if you're, you're a man of God and, and you're a, you, you know, you know the Bible, in the Bible, God says, the first thing God says is let there be light. And so the thing before the light is the intention to create it or the word. And so what comes before anything is the intention to change. And so that's what you're really talking about is intention. Um, and I think that's kind of cool that you came to that yourself. So the first thing that you feel inspired to change is, is, uh, is the thing that you change and, and that, that all starts with the intention. Yep. It's, you know, meet, meet people where they are, let them start where they were, let, let them build their own momentum. But um, it's interesting that passage in that conversation you just brought up because first time I met Jalal, um, and he explained to me light and that's when it all started clicking and making sense to me. And I thought, I love this. And this is sort of the next step in our journey. You know, we started with sugar and then we, and then we went on to carbs and then we went on to organics and yada, yada, yada. And I said the same thing to Jalal. Oh, this is just like the start of the Bible. You know, I, I, <laughs> it was, yeah, it's cool. Yeah. But you it's know, the light thing is real. The light thing's super woo woo as well. 
Um, yeah. When, when you don't under, when you first hear it. Now I've got a I've got a few amazing uh, little testimonies in my own family. My uh, paternal grandmother, so my 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 father's mother, who's alive and in her eighties, has been a poor sleeper for decades. She saw Dr. Max, who said, "Get up and start watching the sunrise outside. No sunnies on. See how you go." And instantly, she started sleeping through, and has since she started that three months ago. After like forty years of not sleeping through, now <clears throat> we can get bogged down about whether that's a placebo effect or not. Mm. Who cares? She's Who sleeping cares? through. You know, you got the results you want. Uh, you know, it's mm. not hurting anybody, and it's free. So, so you'll take it. Um, I lost about six kilos when I started watching sunrises without doing wow. any extra exercise and without uh, adjusting my diet at all. So for me, that was just like, what's going on? This is really strange. And I've just got, I've just got line after line of these in my own little uh, personal ecosystem of people having absolute wins with it. My mm. two-year-old Theodore has seen more sunrises in the last four months than I've seen in my whole life. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I've, I've, I've always been a sleeper. I've never got to see a sunrise. And, yeah. and he, he comes and tugs on my arm, my sleeves to get me out of bed um, 10 to 6 every morning and we go sit out the back. At the moment, we get our rugs, we put our hoodie on because it's, it's cold. Yeah. We go sit out the back and watch the sun come up. And, and as a family unit now, all four of us sit out the back. That's uh, so the cool. sun comes. The, the sun comes up in Aubrey at six twenty-seven at the moment. Yeah, very cool. <laughs> I know exactly. Uh, that's what a, that's actually not it. too bad. You know, that's a that's six twenty-seven is not a bad time to, to have to wake well, up. It fluctuates wildly between you yeah. know the, the the minute it moves every day and, and daylight savings. We've sort of been all over the time, all over the mm. place, but it's working really well now. That's one of the things you also notice, I think, as you as you start to get healthy. You know, is is how how things fluctuate and how things differ day by day. Um, and, you know, the, the sun's coming up. I, I don't know what, what the time difference is, but it's, it's changing as we go into winter, right? And the position of, of sure. the sun and the position of the moon and, you know, the, the rhythms and, and everything is uh, are changing. And, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of cool. You're, you're uh, training yourself into that rhythm as you watch the sun. And so, um, you know, it, it goes back to – now talk about stools before and and you know rhythms and cycles and and you know that's the basis of health so how cool a little cool um lead for you to chase there i don't know if you've done any research into biodynamics and I'm, i know yes I'm, yeah yeah you know i'm not a biodynamic expert but uh you know we're homeschoolers and rudolf steiner's uh, written a lot about education and and you know it's very interesting but the whole the whole you know, biodynamics is really based around um, light and gravity and everything as well. And again, you've got another you've got another thought strain that sounds woo woo. You know, uh, wanting to farm around the lunar cycle, mm-hmm. but you know what controls the tide? Yeah, you know the the tide's water controlled mm. by the moon. Mm. You know, like it all just sorts to click, and they're all marginal gains, and they're all little wins. But your your stacks one percent long enough, and and you you you're really making big strides. Mm. So I I'd really like to talk to a biodynamic farmer. I I think uh, you know, I I don't know as much about it as I potentially could. Um, but I I think uh I think there's some gems in there, and I I absolutely think that Steiner was was like a a, a true genius. You, are you guys cool. using Steiner concepts to to school your kids? Uh yeah, yeah, for sure. Like there's there's um 
I wouldn't say that we're, we're doing like a Steiner system, but there's definitely things that he's incorporated into his schooling that we think are really cool. You know, like I, I know an old person that used to run a Steiner school and one of the things that they did was they, when the child started school at seven years old or whatever it was with the uh, teacher, they built their own desk mm-hmm. to sit at. And then they, if they, if they vandalized or da- damaged the desk, they fixed it. And if they outgrew it, they upgraded it. And that one desk would carry them through their tuition. Now, I don't know if that's a Steiner concept at large or if that's just that spe- specific school's program. Mm. But, you know, little things like that, I think, uh, are easy to sort of dismiss um, as a lot of effort and, and the results are possibly intangible. Uh, that just that just screams powerful lifelong lesson to me. Mm. Yeah, so now I'm going to take that one step further. We're going to go mill our own timber. Oh yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, I bought a mill a couple of years ago, so I've been milling my own timber. We absolutely love it. So yeah, we'll have a cool project doing that. Yeah, awesome. Um, well, it's it's been so good to talk to you. I've had a, a really awesome time. Uh, the podcasting thing is is really good because it's it's given me opportunities to have conversations with people who uh, I I get along with really well, and it's it's uh it's it's great to talk to people with um you know similar values and and who have uh who have stuff to share so thanks for your time today where can people find you before you go yeah look i'm i'm everywhere uh walkyfarm.com.au we've got an online online store and we're shipping meat into melbourne uh we're hoping to open sydney up before the end of the year uh i've got a blog on there i've just started blogging a little bit uh i'm on twitter at jake walkie Uh, walkie farm is on facebook and instagram so you know we're sort of or in all the usual places. So yeah, pretty accessible. I'm, I'm most active on Twitter at the moment. Awesome. Well, thanks for your time. Nick, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I've enjoyed it. Me too.